let's get into the Word tonight. Uh, I want to read to you from Ephesians 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and I'm going to finish that teaching on the ministry gifts. And, uh, and so I'm going to read Ephesians 4 to get us launched into it again, and then we'll pick up where we left off. Maybe we'll have a little bit of time for some questions or discussion tonight. Uh, but we, we've been talking about the fact that, that, for, that God has called for order in the church. Uh, God is a God of order. Amen? And God works through spiritual authority. God does not circumvent authority. He works through authority. And so God has set an order in the church uh, through which um, the spiritual gifts and, and the Word and, and so on, everything that we need to be equipped to do what God's called us to do as individuals and as families, uh, God, God imparts that to the church through the ministry gifts, or, or as if you've grown up in Pentecostal charismatic churches, you may have heard it called the fivefold ministry. Either term is fine. So, uh, so I'm going to read from Ephesians 4 one more time, and then we'll <clears throat> jump right back in. In uh, verse 11, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So a few things to notice here. First of all, each part does its work. There's, there's something, there's some aspect of what the church is to accomplish that involves all of us. Can I get an amen? amen. And so the purpose for the fivefold ministry is to equip the saints to accomplish the works that God's called them to. That's what he says here in um, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service, or uh, King James and New King James say works of ministry, I think. Uh, same word in the Greek. And, um, and so the result of having the fivefold ministry in place is that everyone is equipped to do what God's called them to do, and it results in uh, unity in the faith, Unity in the knowledge of Son of God, a measure of fullness, in other words, maturity. We'll no longer be infants. We'll be stable in what we believe and in where we stand. We won't be uh, blown here and there by crafting and craftiness of people and the cunningness of men. And we will speak the truth in love and grow up and be maturely, fully and maturely developed in Him. So if we look at the church world today, very generally speaking, I don't know about you, but I look at the church world in general, and I don't see a tremendous amount of um, maturity. Do you? I mean, look at Christians on Facebook, and that will settle the issue for you. And, and so it, could it be that part of, and, and part of this is just people need to grow up in the Lord because it's, it's like you know, you're, you're born again and you have a process that takes time to grow. So there's always going to be a certain measure of immaturity in the body of Christ, hopefully, because there'll be new people coming into the body. But part of the reason I believe that the church as a whole does not mature as it should is that we don't have things in godly and biblical order in the church as far as the fivefold ministry is concerned. We recognize 
pastors and evangelists and teachers, but we ignore apostles and prophets. And by the way, if you're interested in the subject of apostles and prophets and having a biblical understanding of that, my professor uh, uh, that I'm in the course I'm in right now at AGTS, uh, she and, and the district superintendent of Kentucky just released a book, uh, I believe it's called Understanding the Apostolic and Prophetic. And uh, I can, I'll put a link in the Facebook group if you're interested in it. But, but, um, and Dr. Tennant, my professor, is as solid as they come. And she, and she, I believe, is a prophet. She's very prophetic. Prophesied a lot over me when I first was diagnosed. I was in her, another one of her classes when I was diagnosed with cancer. She prophesied to me during that time, ministered to me. And, and she is solid. And so if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to pick up that book. And we don't have time to, to delve too far into that tonight. <clears throat> but I believe that when we have the apostolic and prophetic roles in place, along with the, the evangelist pastors and teachers, that that all functions together for the body of Christ to grow and mature. Now, don't get nervous when we talk about apostles and prophets. And we talked about this last week that that, you know, if people go around throwing those titles around, that's a big red flag right there uh, that, that maybe you don't need to pay attention to them because uh, an apostle does not necessarily have to bear the title apostle and he doesn't need to inform you that he's an apostle. He just does apostolic things. And the word apostle means sent one. And so the, the purpose of the apostle, uh, and I like how Dr. Tennant puts it, she said the, the apostle pushes back the darkness. They go into new territory where there's only darkness, and they push the darkness back and establish new works. And then, of course, we talked about the prophet, the same thing there. You know, please, if, if, you, if God calls you to be a prophet, please don't put prophet in front of your name. Um, because usually those guys that do that should be spelling it with an F and not a PH. <laughs> You'll get that on the way home. And so, <clears throat> so, so understand that, that we're not talking about titles as much as we're talking about functions here. And so, yeah, I bear the, t- the title of pastor, and, uh, but, but that's, it, it's, it's not as important. You know, in some churches, they may be called bishops, and some they're called uh, priests or, or whatever. The, the title really is not the issue here. It's the function. And, and the word pastor is actually only in Scripture in the New Testament a few times. But the terms elders and bishops and shepherds are in there multiple times, and all of that is, is actually talking about the same thing in most contexts. And so, so over the last, for the last week, we talked about apostles, prophets, and evangelists. So we got to the point of talking about the pastor. So we're going to dig into this and, uh, and, and, and spend some time talking about what the pastor's role is tonight. Now, let me just preface it with this, that, that I'm always hesitant to even talk about this because... I'm afraid something could be taken as if I'm trying to defend against something or, or address somebody or something like that. And, and there's no, I don't think there's any correction in here. But I, I, I don't want to ever come across like, I'm the pastor and here's what you're supposed to do. You know, I don't want it to be about me. Okay. What I want is for us to have a biblical understanding of, of what the pastor's role is and the teacher's role is just so that we can function as a biblical church. Right. And so, what is the role then of the pastor? And what is the role of the teacher? As I said last week, many scholars believe that the role of pastor and teacher, as it's listed there in Ephesians 4, is actually the same office. Uh, They believe that that it's pastor slash teacher. 
I don't really know for sure about that. I, I do know that you can be a teacher without being a pastor. I'm not sure you can be a pastor without being a teacher. Um, I think that uh, part of the pastoral role involves teaching. Uh, if a pastor, if, if a preacher is just getting up in the pulpit and, and stirring up the crowd each week, he's not building them up to maturity. And we need stirring up, don't misunderstand me. And we need people to come in and stir us up. But, you know, we, we sometimes have this idea that we go to church, we get pumped up so we can make it through another week, and we start losing that pump as the week goes on. So we've got to come back and get a refill and next week. And it's just this habitual, addictive, habit-forming thing to where the preacher becomes your supplier for your emotional high to get you through another week. Is that too harsh? If the pastor is really doing his job, it will involve teaching because it's through teaching that the Word of God is imparted and takes root in our lives in such a way that we can grow, in such a way that we can walk out the Word Monday through Friday. Uh, and and by the, for, for the record, Jesus was never called preacher. He was always called teacher or rabbi. And so, so we, in many cases, have undervalued, I believe, the role of the teacher. Because it doesn't always involve the emotional response. But I love teaching. I, I love to see everything broke down and put back together to see exactly how it works. And I believe that if a pastor is really fulfilling his role, his or her role as a pastor, then uh, there is going to be that teaching element. And that's not to say they don't preach, but there needs to be that teaching element somewhere. And if the pastor, him or herself, uh, is not a teacher, they should surround themselves with people who are. So, let's back up. Now, and let's talk about what is the role then of the pastor. Again, the word literally is shepherd. God has called the pastor to be an overseer. In fact, the word is translated as overseer in some translations in various places in the New Testament. Let's go to 1 Peter, <coughs> excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read this from the New King James Version. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away." So notice here, he equates three things as all being the same thing. Elders, shepherds, and um, overseers. Elders, shepherds, and overseers. And he's addressing the same group of people. So, so the idea here is, is, is that you cannot be made into an elder. You understand? Now, we, we have that title in some churches... And, and, and it's okay to use that title. Titles don't matter is that, that much. But, but either you are or you aren't 
in an, el- an elder. Either, you, either God's called you to be that or, you're, or he hasn't. And, and it's, something that, it's something that we can all, though, grow into. Um, and, and so he's talking here to elders who became pastors by God's calling. And so the idea here of the elder is that is one is not a, 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 a numerical age. It's spiritual elder. It's someone who is mature in the faith that has a fatherly role or a motherly role in, in the local church. And so, so the idea here is that those who are the spiritually mature are to lead within the church. So the elders in the church even if they are not the pastor, he tells them to shepherd the flock of God. They have a pastoral role in their local church. You tracking with me? In other words, you know, we, and this is a, this is a tragedy in American Christianity because we're trying to be young and hip We've sidelined many of the elders, of the elderly, the older saints, and we're saying, you know, okay, it's a new day. You guys sit over here. We're going to do things our way now. Um, we see this especially in, we've even seen this attitude show up in our youth camps, you know, where the youth pastors come in and, and tell those who are running the camp, let us do it our way, you back off. That's, that's a tragedy, and that's something that the enemy is, 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 has done to divide the church. Because what we have many times through that or through just a sense of entitlement, we have the older saints, they find their place in the pew and, and they want to, and I'm not, not talking about us, I'm talking general, generalizations here. They, they get their place in the pew and they want things done their way and the idea is you're here to serve me after all I pay the bills, right? And realistically, typically, they do, Okay. But the biblical pattern, they do pay the bills, I mean. The biblical pattern, though, is that when you reach that point in your faith, and, and you're you know, even an older saint, you may have your spot on the pew, but you are called to be a leader to those who come up after you. Right? How? Well, through example, um, through leadership, and, and, and simply by discipling the younger generation, by just, and this is part of what discipling is, is having a relationship and just show, showing the, by example how to live for Christ. And so there's this element here where he's talking to the, the elders in general, but then there's also application here where he's talking to those who are leaders in the church, like positional leaders in the church. And so he tells us here that we are not to lead for dishonest gain. We're not to lord over to be heavy-handed. But we're to understand that those that we lead are entrusted to us. We're under shepherds, under the great shepherd. I hope you all realize that I will answer to God for how I've led New Life Assembly, how I've led you. And, And that's something that only a fool would take lightly. And so, um, so anyway, 
So he's talking about here elders. He's talking about those that become pastors. And, and, and when, he, when you get to this role of the pastor, the, the position of the pastor, understand that, and this is the same with the fivefold ministry, it's not to be a doer of everything, but an overseer of everything. And so, um, and, and that's what it said in Ephesians 4, was that we prepare the people for the works of ministry, for the works of service. The pastor's calling is not to do ministry. The pastor's calling is to raise up ministers because we're all ministers, okay? And by that, I don't mean necessarily you're teaching behind a pulpit or, or teaching in class, but you are called to serve in some capacity to be a witness for Christ. Willie George has some interesting stories along this line, and he, um, he, I heard him talk about one time that he was counseling this family that came to church once a month. They would show up once a month to church, but they came to him regularly for counseling. And he told them, it's no wonder the devil's after your marriage. You're not living for God. Why did he tell them that? Because they weren't going to church. And what he would run into with them was that, um, that, that he would have to counsel them over things that he had just preached about and if they had been in church, they would have gotten the answers in church and God could have delivered them right there in the altar, perhaps. And so what he ended up doing is he quit counseling altogether because it was taking up so much of his time. He appointed somebody else to start doing it. And he equated situations like that as the devil stealing his time. And the problem was that people began to get angry with him because they couldn't get directly to him. And it was a large church. And so, um, so here's, here's the thing that we have to understand. We sometimes break into this mentality, and it's, it's gradual that we get into this, that somehow if, God, if I'm going to hear from God, I have to be able to get directly to the pastor. And, and, and this is one of the reasons why so many pastors have so much pride is because that really plays on our insecurities. Because it is a lot of fun, usually, to be needed. It is a lot of fun to get those accolades when someone says, Pastor, you're just the best. I just don't know what I would do. There was nobody else I would have called. You're, you know, and you just kind of... You know? And so... And, yeah, do I? Yeah, <laughs> let's get my cape, yeah. And, and do you see the problem with that? And I like what Mike Warnke said, you know, when, when he, he was talking about uh, evangelists, the evangelists who fell, he said, you know, they didn't tell us they were God. We told them they were God and they believed us. And this is a phenomenon that we can see on some scale in many churches is that the, 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 the congregation wants direct access to the pastor about every little thing. And the pastor gets into this codependent thing to where he or she needs to be needed. And this is why... Pastors fall into sin. One of the reasons why. This is why churches don't grow. This is why pastors burn out. This is why saints don't mature. It's because the pastor's trying to do all the work of the ministry. And so, um, why did Willie George do this? It's because this counseling and all these other things were consuming his time, and that time was meant to be in study and prayer, according to the Word of God. So he appointed somebody to start doing it. He eventually started uh, referring people out uh, to professional counselors. 
And so let me just tell you where I'm at on this. I do still do some counseling. I don't do a lot, not like I used to. And there's a good reason for that. I'm not a counselor. And, um, and so I do a very limited pastoral counseling. And if the issue can be resolved in one or two or three sessions, then I'm all for it. If it's more than that, I'm going to refer you to a professional counselor. And, so, and we have some good Christian counselors that we refer people to. Uh, and, and, and if they can't pay for it, if their insurance won't pay for it and they can't pay for it, we'll help, we usually can help them with those expenses. The counselors work with us on that. Uh, so you understand, it, and, and it, it's a problem for a pastor to really get deep into counseling. I've, I've, been, I've been caught in the middle of this before. I've tried to resolve disputes uh, between two women one time and got both of them mad at me. Um, they both left the church, and they both thought I was siding with the other one. And when I actually was siding with neither one of them, they were both acting like children. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are situations like that. There's been situations where I've done marital counseling, and they get into some really deep, personal, uh, intimate it, deep, uh, issues and, and then end up leaving the church because they can't face me seeing them every Sunday, knowing that I know what they've told me. And, uh, and then there's been you know, a couple of occasions to where they're just uh, em- embarrassed to see me or they, or they begin to think I'm preaching at them if something in a sermon in their minds connects with something they've told me in a counseling session. Do you see how sticky this gets really quick? And so, um, so I don't do a lot. And, and I refer, refer counselees to someone that's far better equipped than I am. And, uh, and it's worked out really well for all involved, I believe. So, uh, so that's where I stand. Now, you say, well, pastor, but this is your role as a pastor, isn't it? No, it's not, actually. That's an American idea of what pastoring is. But it's not a biblical idea. You see, your pastor has no special powers. <laughs> I love you, Sherry. Um, you know, we sometimes think that, that if you have reverend in front of your name, that there's something really different about you. Nah, there's not. You know, I told Brother, when I was pastoring my first church, I had Brother Doc come, my pastor come and speak one time and, uh, for a revival. <coughs> And this is, you know, my first year pastoring. And I said, Doc, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you modeling integrity and godliness for me growing up. I said, growing up under you, I assumed all pastors, or at least most pastors, lived like that. Now that I am one and hang around with a lot of pastors, I realize that's not the case. And that's the truth. Uh, There are a lot of pastors who are very immature, and some that are very immoral, and yet God's blessing their churches. Why? It's because of the anointing that's on them. Now, God can only bless it up to a point because a person's, as T.D. Jake says, a person's giftings will take them to where their character can't sustain them. But understand this, it's the anointing upon the minister's role And that's what feeds you. That's what ministers to you. Um, It's not the personality. It's the anointing. And and the anointing and the personality are not the same. The same anointing is in others too. And and so you need the anointing, not the person. I mean, think about in the case of Moses, 
who had all these people coming to him day in and day out. Remember this? Where in Israel, they had people with disputes coming to him all day long, and he was wearing them out. His father-in-law, Jethro, came and saw what he was doing, and he said, Moses, what you're doing is not good. He said, you will be exhausted. And, and he said, here's what we're going to do. He says, I want you to gather, what was it, 100 men, I think, and, or a large number of men. He said, we're going to lay hands on, you're going to lay hands on them, and the anointing that is on you, the Spirit of God that's on you, will come upon them. Let them handle the smaller matters, and if they can't handle it, they bring it to you. And it was a good, they, they deemed that to be a good thing, and God blessed it. And see, when you do it that way, when you, minister, when you approach ministry in that way, it becomes scalable. Uh, one, if a pastor is, doing, is trying to care for everybody by him or herself, the most he or she can do is 120 people. Now, let me just point something out to you. Oh, so in my 20 years here, on at least three occasions, we have hit 120 and stayed there for a little while, and we come off of it, and we get back down to anywhere from 85 to 90 people in attendance. It's happened at least three times in my tenure here. So you know what that tells me? There's something in our structure that is causing us to have a ceiling at 120. And so there's something that needs, to, needs an adjustment there so that it can become scalable. So, so just in the case with Moses, they, they, the, the people that he laid hands on began to partake of his anointing. So Keith, Chris, Daniel, and, and, and our ministry team, when you're ministering here under this house, in this house under, under the, the anointing that God's given me, you become an extension of the anointing that's on me. You minister in largely the same anointing. Now you'll have, you know, God, you have your own unique anointing, and God uses that, but you're still in alignment with because you're under the anointing that God's given me. And so, so when you when 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 you come to get ministry, understand it doesn't have to be all by me. Keith is far better at pastoral care than I am. I'll tell you that right now. And Sylvia's going, uh-huh. That you're saying there's a reflection on him, not on me, I hope. So. Yeah, Keith, Keith has one of the strongest pastoral anointings for pastoral care that I've ever seen in my life. The first time we went to, on a hospital, hospital visitation together, this was a family I had known for probably 10 years. He had just met them. And he, the Hubbards, and, and so when you... When he began talking to Sister Hubbard, they found some person they had in common, and they just start talking, and I'm just kind of just back up against the wall and just kind of sit there and just, you know, because he connected with them, you know. That's awesome. Why would I try to hinder what God can do through him just so that I can say, well, I'm the pastor. I'm the one that's got to be there. Doesn't make sense, does it? The only thing that would cause me to do that would be pride or fear, right? So, um, so you, what you need from us is that anointing, not the person. Whatever vehicle brings that anointing to you, that's what you need. So your relationship with your pastor is primarily twofold. Receive the preaching of the word. And get involved in the pastor's vision. Serve, get plugged in, participate in what God is doing. 
And God will give you a vision of your own as you do that. God will give you a vision of your own, but it begins with serving someone else's vision. Watch this. In Luke 16, 12, Jesus says, And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? And so this applies to ministry that, that you, know, you may know what God's called you to do one day, but when you serve someone else's vision... God equips you and prepares you, and it's a testing time so that that you can not only be prepared, but so that you can be trusted with the vision that God gives you. If you can't be trusted with my vision, God can't trust you with the vision He wants to give you. So we understand this is part of the reason why we need the church. It's for the equipping of the saints, the building up of the saints, the preparation of the saints. So this is the, fi- the uh, primary focus of the pastoral ministry. You don't even have to like me for me to pastor you effectively. If you're willing to receive the word and embrace the vision. Now this is not, just again, not to say your pastor is somehow superhuman or different than anybody else. I'm a normal human being. I'm a nerd. I'm weird. I get it. Um, Please don't place me or any other pastor on a pedestal because we will let you down. We will let you down. We could let you down by not doing something the way you like it. We could let you down by failing because we're human. I'll tell you, when I began pastoring, there was a lot that school prepared me for, but there was a lot more it didn't. And one of the things that I was not prepared for was the amount of spiritual warfare that goes into it. And it's not just the onslaught of demonic forces, you know, that you're, you know, grabbing the sword of the Spirit and fighting like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. It's, it's a subtle, it's, 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 um, it's, it's more like behind-the-scenes spy-type warfare, you know? Subtle things. That will, you know, opportunities to compromise, opportunities to fall short of the mark, opportunities to take shortcuts, opportunities to see my name promoted. All of it's so subtle. It's, it's like Jesus in the wilderness when Satan was like, you know, you say you're the son of God, jump. God will catch you. Prove you're who you say you are. You know, that's playing on Jesus' pride, you know. And so, um, so I wasn't prepared for that amount of spiritual warfare, and I make tons of mistakes. You've seen some of them. I've made a lot more you haven't seen. And so there's nothing, nothing superhuman about who I am. It's all in the equipping of what God's called me to do. You may think that God can't use you because you see your flaws, you get on Facebook and you see somebody else's highlight reel and you're looking at your own bloopers and behind-the-scenes footage. You may be looking at my highlight reel and you're looking at your behind-the-scenes and you think, God can't use me. God can't use you. But understand this. You'll never be good enough for God to use you. He'll use you just as you are and help you grow along the way. 
Willie George also tells of a well-known TV minister hiding in a closet from time to time from discouragement. We see these guys on television and we think they've got it made. I was was, uh, listening to a a pastoral coach one time and he said, let me tell you something about these well-known pastors and even these megachurch pastors. They're miserable. He said, they're absolutely miserable. And because once it gets to that certain point, it becomes a machine that you have to maintain, a show that you have to promote. And, And I don't mean that in as negative a sense as it sounds like, but the machine takes on a life of its own. And so, you know, it's, it's a wonder. And you say, well, why do so many ministers fall? It, it's a wonder that more don't fall because the unbiblical way we do church puts so much on them to where it all depends on them. So, I believe you're to honor your pastor but it's not the person you're honoring. It's the anointing that you're honoring. And, and I think when, and, and you guys are great at this, by the way, but when you honor me, you, you're sowing something there that God will reap back into your own life. So, um, so that raises then the question, where do, where do deacons fit into this? Now, if you grew up in a Baptist church, you know that, that most churches were deacon-possessed. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? The deacons ran everything. Well, that's not biblical. Um, if a pastor is called to oversee, what are the deacons called to do? Acts chapter 6, we all know this passage. Let's read verses 1 through 4. It says, In those days when the numbers of disciples were increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, who will turn this responsibility over to them. And watch this. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So here's the context. The church was caring for widows and orphans, as they should be. And there were two groups here, Hellenistic Jews or Greek Jews and Hebraic Jews. Now their cultures were, uh, I'm sorry, not Greek. I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews. Their cultures were slightly different. And, and so there was a little bit of division there. They, and one group was being overlooked as the church grew. Let's put it in modern in, in a little bit more modern context let's say that we had a contingency of a contingent of uh, Hispanics that were attending our church and by the way Hispanics would be welcome here whether they're legal or illegal their issues with the government are not their issues with Jesus or not the issues with the church anyway there it is with Jesus but we can help them if, if God if God brings them to us we'll minister to them amen so, um, so let's just say that there's a contingent of Hispanics here and we're having a dinner and we're feeding, uh, we feed families every week. What if we give all the first plates to all the white people that are here and we wait, if we feed them at all, we feed all the, all the Hispanics at the end. 
because we'll probably run out knowing the way a lot of white folks eat, right? <laughs> and so we overlook, we don't, and we don't feed them. Now, you would say, well, that's just racist. Yes, it is. And that's exactly what was happening in Acts 6. There was a little bit of uh, prejudice here. And so, so there was this uh, sense of, you know, you guys are over there. You're other than we are. So um, they established the office of the deacon. The word deacon means servant. The role of the seven was to meet the needs of the people and to take care of logistic issues so that the leaders could focus on prayer and ministry of the Word. Here's the thing, is this group had grown so quickly, this church had grown so quickly since the day of Pentecost that the the apostles that were leading and were trying to get things in order, they did not catch that people were being overlooked. And as a church grows, it's impossible for the leadership to catch every little issue that arises. It's just not possible to keep up with that many people. So the apostles didn't know this was going on. When word was brought to them, they said, okay, you select seven guys that need to be full of the Holy Spirit. We're going to anoint them, and they're going to take care of this. They're going to take care of all the logistical stuff. They're going to make sure everybody gets fed. They're going to make sure everything is run the way it needs to be because our calling as the leaders then is to devote our time to prayer and the ministry of the Word. With that in mind, what does the deacon do? The deacon serves. The deacon waits tables, literally or figuratively. In other words, the deacon takes care of the logistical needs of the church to see that things are run smoothly, to see that all the systems are functioning as they should, so that the leadership, the pastors, the apostles in this case, can devote their time to prayer, to studying the Word, and to prepare to teach and preach. Because what happens, you know, we have this joke about, you know, it's a good thing, it's good to be a pastor because you only work one day a week. The great thing about that is people that say that have never pastored. Um, I may not be in the office 60 hours a week, but it's not unusual for me to put in 60 or more hours in, in a week. There's just stuff that comes up all the time. And so uh, what happens more often than not, if I'm, if I'm not careful, is that the study for Sunday gets put off because I have some situation that comes up, and there's many times I'm preparing on Saturday to preach on Sunday. And that's not the, I mean, you know, when fast food does not nourish you. Right? It needs time to cook. It needs time to simmer. And so, 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 the biblical model then is that others, whether they bear the title of deacon or whatever we call them, they need to be taking care of the logistics so that I or, or Keith or others can focus on the ministry of the Word and, and prayer. I, uh, I, I've been challenged recently just to, to take a look at my own prayer life and to, to commit more time to, to prayer. You know, I, I did this study on uh, uh, George Mueller uh, who, who, who made this statement that if a, if a task takes five hours to accomplish, far more can be done if four of those hours are spent in prayer. You know, and, and this is a guy that had million, the equivalent of millions of dollars go through his, li- his hands in this lifetime to care for orphans. And never once did he ask for money, and money just came to him. That challenges me. And so, so, so I, you know, I find that as a pastor, I've got to 
make it a point that I prioritize those things in, in my life and in my ministry. So the, in, to the, back to the deacons. They did not direct the church in Acts 6. It's the ministry gifts that sit over the church that, uh, that leads the church in God's, in God's Word. Deacons freed them up to focus on their calling. So having a good structure of leadership in the church will help keep goats from overrunning the sheep, right? Um, all right. So let's see. So I'll just, I'll just wrap up with this. So if I am fulfilling my role as a pastor and as a teacher, then you become equipped to do everything God's called you to do. That's the goal of the pastor and the teacher. If I'm doing my role properly, then you can receive through me what you need from God to be a godly husband or wife, father, mother, son, daughter, or whatever. Um, so understand this, that just as God places the ministry gifts in the church, I'm trying to summarize what I've written here because I'm out of time, but just as God places the ministry gifts in the church, the Bible also tells us that God places each member in the body as He wills. And so just as God has placed me as a pastor, God's placed you. And what God has in you, has implanted in you, that needs to be brought to fruition, that is a gift to the church. You have a gift to the body of Christ in you, whether you realize it or not. And so my goal and my role is to bring that out in you. So it's it's 8 o'clock now, but let's take just a second. Any questions, comments? feedback on this because some of this might be new concepts depending on what kind of church background you grew up in. Anybody? Well, maybe I did a good job teaching then if I answered all the questions before you asked them. (laughs) Do you know that... Oh, yay! I hope it's chocolate chip. So, um, so let me just let me just add one more thing, and then we'll close. You may not preach from on a platform as a pastor, and yet God may still have a pastoral gift in you. Let me just make that clear. You know, Keith. Of course, Keith is one of our staff pastors, but even though he's not the pastor, he has a very strong pastoral anointing and in the same way whether you're on staff or whether you're in a leadership position or not you may have a pastoral anointing or a teacher's anointing or an apostolic anointing Chris has a strong apostolic anointing uh, Chris can go in and start something new what, what, he, what, what Chris will do is he will go in and launch something but then he'll need people to come in behind him to shore it up and give structure to it so that it can continue to grow that's the way it works with an apostle. And so, um, so understand this, that you, you may have these anointings and not have the title. And that's okay. Because God has not called you to a position as much as He's called you to a function. And so, you know, if you, if you are energized by caring for people, 
by uh, teaching them and watching them grow, if you're energized by being with them and hurting with them when they're going through something, there's a good chance that that's a pastoral anointing. If, if, you, if you love taking the Word of God and breaking it down and studying the Greek and the Hebrew and explaining it so that people can understand, you're a teacher. You've, you've got a teacher's anointing. Um, if you always have a clear sense of what God is saying, and, and, and probably there's times where you know things about people that God, that God has shown you, that's a prophetic anointing. doesn't mean you're a prophet. It means you have a prophetic anointing. And if you are really good at leading people to the Lord, and if everything about your life is about getting people to know Jesus and that kind of thing, that's an evangelistic anointing. The point is this. Whatever it is that energizes you, pursue it. Go after it. Whether you have a position or a title doesn't matter. Just do it. And the Bible tells us that our gifts will make way for us. If you find where your gifts are, and you begin to pursue those things, God will open doors for you. So I began as, as a, and when I first began to sense I was called to, pre, called to pastor, I just began looking for opportunities to preach. And, and the Lord just began to open doors. And, you know, it took a lot of time, but, but God finally, you know, ended up here. So in the same way, if you, if you have that, drawing towards something don't wait don't don't just wait and and say well when god opens a position for me don't do that go for it do something just just step out in faith just a little bit just see what happens you know you say if you say well i got a pass i know i've got a pastoral gift i love praying for people when they're sick let us know you can go with me and keith to the hospital and pray for people you know you can, uh, you know, I, I believe I'm called to be a teacher. We'll find you an opportunity to teach. Begin to exercise those gifts and, and, and let us help you and, and develop you. And, and God, will, God will open those doors for you. Amen? All right, any last comments, questions? Keith, you got anything? I do. I think that <clears throat> I think that many, if not most, of our missionaries are apostles. Um, I talked a little bit about that last week. That I think Jason Loper, you know, is is an apostle. He's taking, he's raising up ministers in Nepal and taking them, leading them to establish churches in places where there is no gospel witness at all. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, he's in Ecuador. Is it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so many of our missionaries are, are apostles. And, and many of them function very much like Paul did. I mean, they're establishing, you know, when we, when we talk about planting a church in America, we're thinking of, you know, thirty dollars to $60,000 and getting a building and a venue, hiring a worship team and getting the lights and the sound equipment and, you know, this massive um, effort. In many of these other countries, when they talk about planting a church, it's they get a group to gather up under a big tree and they meet there every week. You know, our standards are a little different. And so people like Joel Marbot, for example, um, and I'm using it as an example, I don't know exactly what he does particularly, but, but people like him, they'll have these churches planted, they'll be training those pastors, and they will go and oversee all those churches and just, you know, provide guidance and, and, and 
help those pastors develop, and they just maintain that kind of oversight, but they're just getting them established and helping them to get to a certain point, and then they stand on their own. That's what the apostles do. So, all right, anybody else? All right, well, let's stand together.